This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Well, welcome to Script the Screen Zombieland. Uh, I'm your host, yeah. Matt Ryan. Uh, Zombieland screenplay blends comedy and genre and flips the undead on its head. Uh, to help us break down the script, we're very excited to welcome the screenwriters, Paul Warnick and Rhett Reese. Hey, guys. Thank you for, uh, for being here. Uh, okay, so how do you uh, approach structuring a story uh, and deciding what traditional uh, you know, zombie conventions there are? Because we'll go over some of the zombie rules. Survivor's first contact is dealt with disbelief and shock. Zombies are slow and lumbering. Authorities respond to the threat slower than its rate of growth, giving the zombie plague time to expand beyond containment. Oh, well, that's not at all applicable to today. Um, so, all right, so how do you find structuring the story, deciding what to keep? The rules, like, for example, shooting zombies in the head or what to break, having zombies that could sprint. Uh, well, we didn't. We we knew we wanted the zombies to be fast. That that had been a recent development at the time with Twenty Eight Days Later, because we thought they posed a greater threat. So we knew we wanted that. Uh, we knew we wanted to tell a story that wasn't too linear and boring. Like we didn't want to start with the the outbreak and the generals on television telling people to stay in their homes, and we just didn't want to do it that way. And so we framed this device, the, the rules for surviving Zombieland, as, as a means to actually start the story. And then we thought it was something uh, that we could carry on week to week and start adding to a, a growing list of rules. Uh, as we spoke about earlier, uh, before this began, uh, this started as actually a television pilot. It was an hour-long pilot we wrote on spec, and we sold it to CBS, of all places. Uh, so it was designed very much for television. There was a zombie kill of the week because we wanted to do one every week. Uh, there were rules that were going to grow into a larger list. Um, we were writing to commercial breaks in, in, the, in the story, in the script. Um, but thankfully, CBS never made it. it it's, it's worth noting, too, this was pre-Walking Dead. This was pre-any zombies on TV. And it's why actually what inspired us to write it is we did see this hole in the marketplace of going, well, zombies have worked on, on, on the big screen. Nothing, no one's really doing it on the small screen. And that's why we set out to write it on spec as a TV pilot. And then ironically, it ended up becoming a movie. It didn't go at CBS. Our producer and our executive, Gavin, Gavin Pallone and, and uh, Chris Parnell, convinced their, the Sony uh, bosses to let us expand it into feature length. We took what was going to be the second episode of the show and glommed it onto the back of the first episode and then created an ending, sort of a bigger, badder ending. Uh, and that was your movie. I mean, that was what ultimately became the movie. We were intending to shoot it as a made-for-TV movie that was going to be a backdoor pilot to a television series. We still wanted to turn it into a TV series. But when Gavin got the script, he said, this is too... Uh, expensive and too good and we've got to we've got to see if we can take it over to the feature department at Sony and the the people at Sony Television were were really gracious and let us take it over to the feature department and they fell in love with it and we were casting you know probably within a year or so we, the writer's strike happened there was some shenanigans there uh not shenanigans it was just sort of disaster for all writers so we had to put our pencils down but once once the strike ended we got back into it and we were shooting the movie pretty soon after. It was probably two, 2005 is when we wrote it and we were shooting it in 2008. So it was about a 
three year long process from start start of of uh, script to to actually going in front of camera. And and you never know in Hollywood there there are often blessings in disguise lurking and and in this case not having our pilot get shot was a big blow at the time and and then it was the greatest thing that ever ended up happening to us. It, it took us on a totally different career path. It, you know, sorry, Zombieland, it's interesting. It, it's had a very unique, you know, journey to the, to the screen and that, again, it started as a TV pilot, became a movie. We then wrote a sequel right after the movie came out, which didn't get, get uh, off the ground for a variety of reasons, became a TV pilot again at Amazon failed as a TV pilot at Amazon, and then became a sequel, uh, what, about uh, eight years, seven years later? I mean, so and, and, and the movie came out 10 years after the first movie. I mean, the, the second movie came out almost 10 years to the day of the first movie. Crazy journey. When you did the TV, how much, how much did you map out? In the early days like how many how the storyline not much at all that was a, a little bit more of the wild west where we just said we don't have any idea where this is going it's going to be crazy adventures every week and maybe that's why they didn't buy it <laughs> or they didn't didn't shoot it <laughs> you mentioned the columbus's rules because uh, he develops his own rules to survive in the story how do you think that his rules contribute to the unconventional story structure right well, one of the things they did and one of the things his narration did was it, it gave us the freedom to jump around in time and space and do quick pops of jokes and do quick flashbacks to different different time periods, you know, right at the time that the zombies appeared and and to, to do character development by showing Little Rock and Wichita in a, in a previous life being con women on the road, bilking people for money. Um, it just it just gave us real freedom and and that's why we structured it that way and that's why we use those rules and Columbus's narration to just to just blow it wide open and, and tell a, a story that was a little non-linear. It's interesting you know it, that there are a lot of things in the script and that ended up on screen that that were non-traditional you know that you've got an omniscient narrator in Columbus who it wouldn't make sense that he knows what's going on in Little Rock and Wichita's life. And yet here he is describing it. You know, he's um, in the first, what, we don't meet our main characters until seven or eight minutes into the film, correct? Yeah, I don't know if it's quite that long, but it's a bit. I mean, we, we yeah, we don't, yeah. Um, so, so again, it, it'll, uh, we did in the nonlinear structure and in the voiceover and in all the, all the tools we use, the rules, it allowed us to break interestingly, a lot of screenwriting rules um, that, that, you know, are well established. So. How important was it for you to kind of, cause all the characters, we'll start with the first character Columbus to show how they could survive in the world, like through their backstory. Yeah. Uh, I mean, that, like, was sort of, that was sort of crucial because that's how we came up with the characters. I mean, we really, we really started by thinking, well, what kind of people could, would survive, could or would survive in a zombie apocalypse? And it struck us as funny if, if being a wimp or being a shut-in or an introvert was actually a positive in a post-apocalyptic world, that it, it contributed to this sense of carefulness and, and uh, thinking two steps ahead, and it allowed Columbus to survive. And then, and then our mind immediately went, went to, well, what's the opposite of that? Like, who would be a good foil for that? And it's a person who's the opposite, aggressive, looking for a fight, you know, just putting himself out there and, and kicking ass, and that became Tallahassee. 
and then the, the women too. I mean, that we again, we're thinking, what kind of person survives? And we thought, well, what about con women? What about people who are having to, to live by their wits, you know, on the streets? And we thought, well, they, they would be perfect in a zombie apocalypse. So really that, that survivability uh, uh, quotient was, was pretty crucial in, in determining all of these characters. Yeah, Paul, I mean, Tallahassee breaks one big zombie rule. I've never seen a character that runs two zombies. Yeah. <laughs> to kill them. Like, it is such interesting because they're running away. It's always about the infighting. Here you have, a, it must be interesting to write the character because you can kind of, having some fun with him because he's not afraid. And he actually, they're almost afraid of him. Yeah, I mean, and again, in, in Woody, you know, Woody brought such a, a wonderful element to, to, the, to the role and the character. And, and, and really brought it to life in a way that that was even beyond our imagination. You know, he's this kick-ass, you know, carefree redneck. You know, and uh, um, and and his his interaction with Columbus and the girls, and 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 also with the zombies, kind of brought brought the world to life in a way that that really was beyond our imagination. So. Yeah, so so you gave him all the good lines, not up and shut up, and I love rednecks. Was that intentional, or is that Woody improvising? The not up or shut up was in the script. I think the I love rednecks was an improv. That was Woody. That was, yeah. He said, thank God for rednecks when he found all the, the guns in the, in, the, in the truck. that He just improvised that, and we loved it. Uh, okay, so obviously the opening is important, because if you're doing a non-traditional movie, you want to set the tone. And the tone is really set. You, know, you have the cardio rules. And you have the woman flying through the windshield. How important is for you for to have that opening to really ground the audience? This is what the movie's going to be. Paul, do you want to take that one? Well, I, I think it, it was super important because tone, so much of what the movie was, was, was the, the, the tone. It, what made it unique, I think, what, what gave the audience the ride that when they sat down in the theater was, was the, the in and out of, of, thrills and and scares and laughs and tears you know all those things and and so you know Ruben Ruben really set that tone with the opening opening credits um you know the main titles uh and the slow-mo and the Metallica um and, and really kind of gripped the audience right from the get-go that first five to ten minutes of, of a script and of a movie we think are so important because it allows the audience when they when they engage in those first, you capture them in those first five or 10 minutes. If you do it right, they know that they're in good hands, right? It's like, ah, okay, I'm in good hands. I can sit back and enjoy this movie versus if, if, if they're, if you don't grab them from that very start and you don't kind of set the tone of the movie right up front, it, 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 it kind of the audience checks out there are moments that the audience can check out so it really is important those first 10 pages of a script those first 10 minutes of a movie are so important uh, to set the tone and to to establish to the audience that they are in good hands now right we're going to get into we're going to talk casting and working with the actors but uh and they were all great i mean the superb cast but red i did hear there was one cast member that was very difficult on set there's an opening shot in the credits where there's a guy with a machine gun firing red. Yeah. Yeah. How did you I, feel about that guy's performance of like, cause he just, it just, he seemed I thought he nailed it. He nailed it. I mean, look, I, if they were an Oscar for a cameo, if they had that as a category, I think I deserved it. 
that was an awesome moment for me. And, and I think Paul regrets not that day. I forget he had something else going on or something or didn't want to do it or I'm not sure, but no, what I'll tell you what happened was they wanted me to be a zombie. Oh, and, and you were and like, I'm like, I don't want to be a zombie. Rhett's going to go, he's got a tuxedo. He looks like James Bond. He's got a machine gun and you want me to be a zombie? No, no deal. It was the last day of shooting and it was actually snowing in the middle of April uh, in, in uh, Atlanta. And, but I have never had more fun. I mean, it was just shooting an AK-47 uh, at zombies. That's, that's it really is. The, I think it's the best cameo. Of, I, I, it's such a great cameo. We, got, we had a cameo in Deadpool 2 that, was, that, that paled in comparison. It that was, was terrible. It was terrible. So. It, well, it didn't make the movie. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's in the supercut only. <laughs> no, I think there's a couple of shots of us. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Blaine yeah. Wait, we mentioned how important is an opening. Let's look at Jesse Eisenberg's performance. His first scene where he's afraid of bathrooms and gives a sense of his personality, you know, runs in the gas station and chased by a zombie. How did you think he captured what the character you imagined? The best. I mean, he, he suffered a lot of anxiety because the, that particular character was based on me. And, and he had just come off a movie called Adventureland that was written and directed by Greg Matola that was about him, him as a young person. And he said he was so self-conscious that he was acting in front of Greg Matola, thinking, I'm screwing this up. He sees me as a fraud. I'm trying to be him. And he knows that it's, it's BS. And, and then he brought that same anxiety onto the Zombieland set and, and, and just couldn't stand basically acting in, fr in front of me, which is ridiculous because he was so amazing. He's really Chaplin-esque. I've always described him as that. But his physicality... When he's when he's rolling that toilet paper in the bathroom, if you could just just imagine Charlie Chaplin doing it like that, it, he he's just a great physical comic, and that fastidiousness and the the nerdiest nerdiness just really comes across through his body language, um, right right at the top of the movie. And of course, uh, Paul, the key scene was the Tallahassee and Columbus meet scene, where you know they stand over the guns in the car. Uh, how important was that? car scene for you to introduce Woody Harrelson's character of uh, Tallahassee? It was, it was the, the moment when we were out on set that I thought this movie's going to, when we saw it shot, I said, this movie's going to work. Um, I think that, that, that the, the way the two played off each other um, uh, was, was so great and, and compelling. And, and Ruben shot it, you know, he, he kind of, uh, he shot it that, that particular scene as if he was shooting a Western, you know, the way they, they cut, uh, you know, tights, tights, then, you know, the two and, and, uh, um, and, and it did have a, a Western type feel that, that scene when they first stare each other down and then drop the guns and get in the car and then that interaction, um, it, it's in the program, it's what we sent as, as that scene that you can refer to in, in, the, uh, in the program we sent to you. Um, it's an early draft of that scene that you can read it. Um, and uh, um, yeah, it, uh, it, it, it was, and they started to improv a little bit during that scene and, and that, you know, Jesse throws the shot over his shoulder. You know, Woody's got the knife, and Jesse goes, uh, I forget, what does he say, Rad? I knocked over your alcohol with your knife or something. Knocked over your alcohol yeah. with your knife. And then, um, yeah, we, uh, it, it was, it really did establish those two as, as, as you know, um, as wonderful foils for one another, so. 
Now, Rhett, the, uh, now the opening scene, well, the, the, the flashback scene shows Columbus with 406 played by Amber Heard. Uh, you have some great comedy there. You're funny, but you're flipping comedy and horror in the same scene, mixing it all together. How is that trying to balance, you know, the comedy of it with the seriousness? Because that is probably the frightening, one of the most frightening scenes of the movie. Yeah, I mean, it was, it was the very first thing we shot that was, was 406 on a soundstage. And, and Ruben really wanted it to be scary. I mean, I think he wanted the whole movie to be scary. And actually, I think the movie turned out less scary than he had hoped. But, but then that turned out to be a blessing in disguise because I think in the tug of war between comedy and horror, I think you, you want to have one be a little more prevalent than the other. And I think it benefited us to have comedy, to lean into the comedy a little bit more and have it be more of a, of a funny movie than a really scary movie. Um, but, but yeah, I would call that probably one of the scariest scenes in the movie, if not the scariest. Uh, and uh, I think it just, we had to set the tone that this is a, a grounded place where people die and people can be killed and violent things happen. And, and uh, just to keep people on the edge of their seats from that point forward. Now, Emma Stone was originally, I watched your Blu-ray commentary, was supposed to play 406, but got promoted to Wichita. And if we remember, this is 10 years ago, Emma was an emerging star, but had a, you know, we haven't really gotten to see her as much. She did The House Bunny and Superbad. Yeah, yeah Mila, Mila Kunis was supposed to play her part oh. and, and got into a contract negotiation that just got drawn out. And, and then Denzel Washington showed up and, and said, do you want to do this movie called Book of Eli? And Mila uh, Kunis said, bye-bye to Zombieland. And, and we had Emma on deck as 406, and Ruben got to make one of the best calls of his life and, and you know, in calling Emma and basically saying, the role's your, I mean, Wichita is yours if you want it. And that, the rest was history because Emma is just, it's just a, a rock star. She's the ultimate superstar. Now, it was interesting because you had the flashback with them, scan, uh, they, they, after they scanned Woody Harrelson and uh, her and Abigail Breslin's cat, Wichita and Little Rock. We also had the flashback to how they got there like their skill. Was there any conversation on how that would be structured? Because if you did the flashback first, it might have lessened the impact of the meeting or was there any kind of decisions about whether or not to keep the flashback or how to structure their the flashback backstory? Almost, the flashback almost fell out of the movie, actually. Ruben didn't like it. He thought it slowed the pace down a little bit. Um, he was open to, to using it and, it and it went in front of a test audience and it was the greatest test screening we've ever been a part of. Like the audience went crazy and the studio walked up to Ruben right after the screening and said, you're not changing anything. Like you're locking that sucker in, you know, literally you're done. Like, and, and so he then went, okay, well, I mean, it works. So I, so I, I admit that maybe I was, I was wrong to want to take it out, but um, I think it just richened the characters a little bit um, to have it. Yeah, I think, I think it's important for an audience to know how a character became who he or she currently is. And so that, that allowed us to get in backstory, establish the two as sisters, establish the two as, as broken and damaged and yet really smart and, and you know, and, and wonderful con, con women. So um, it was an important one for us to, to get into the movie and we're, we're really happy it stayed. So. Well, again, it's nice to see characters I haven't seen before. I haven't seen grifting teenagers before. Women, you know, so like, it's yeah, it like Paper Moon. We, we thought of yeah. Little Rock as sort of being a Paper Moon nod. Um, you know, the, 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 the innocent, cute little girl who turns out to be anything but. 
which goes to the grocery store scene with Abigail Breslin's performance of how she flips on the dime between the frightened girl who is dying from a zombie to stealing their guns. How was that for, uh, for Cassie? How do you feel about Abigail's, you know, how she captured that in general, the whole character itself? Oh man, she, she was 11, I think at the time she shot with us. And in that scene in the, in the back of that grocery store, when she cries, all the actors, even Woody was like, Whoa, this girl has the chops. Like, um, and then, and then turns it on a dime. Uh, she had, she had, was, when, when was, she, had she done? Um, Little Miss Sunshine, she was a significantly younger, but she was probably the premier actress of her age at the time. Like there was yeah. no question. Yeah. She was, she was sort of a dominant force at that moment. Um, and uh, just had crazy chops and we were thrilled to have her. I mean, you look at the, the cast of a movie called Zombieland, right? And it had, Woody, Jesse, Emma, Abby, Bill Murray, what, five, five Oscar nominees slash some winners, right? I mean, it was a, it, it was a, it, we upcasted basically, a, a, we A-casted a, 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 B, a B movie in a way that I, I don't think audiences expected. You know, Woody, when Woody first had the script of Zombieland, it sat on his desk forever because he read the title page. And he's like, I'm not doing a movie called zombie land. Like no way. I'm not even cracking that thing. It's ridiculous. Like I'm not going to be in a zombie movie. His agent was like, you've got to read this. You got to read this. He read it. And it was like, I'm in like the, the, the second he put it down. So um, it, it was a, a unique um, casting experience and that we were landing all these a level, you know, wonderful wonderful actors in what could have potentially been a very b movie so and credit to ruben for seeing their potential too because you know jesse hadn't done social network yet and emma had not done so, you know a lot of the you know the la la lands and stuff like that like so they he was he, they were on the come like they were they were not established superstars but he he, he saw them and and saw the talent they had and, and ran with it I did like my favorite, I think my favorite moment in Zombieland is having Abigail Breslin explain the dual identity nature of Hannah Montana to Woody Harrelson. <laughs> that was an improv. Yeah. <laughs> so that car, yeah, because I said the car, basically that car was an improv where they were just riffing on each other. Yeah, we just let them run for a while. Uh, I mean, it just, just, just riff and Abby loved it, actually literally loved Hannah Montana. It was her favorite thing. And, and they were, she was pretty much actually explaining it to Woody. <laughs> He's like, wait a minute. I don't. Yeah. She's wearing a wig and no one can recognize her? Like, that wasn't acting. That was just a conversation. It was. It kind of was. Yeah. We were rolling on it. So, well, I'm going to take a snack break with a Twinkie in honor of the movie. Oh. oh. Uh, so, Shit, I, you didn't bring one for everyone? I would have the whole entire audience. But um, so, how did you guys land on the. Because it was always good to have screenwriting rules, have a character with a fatal flaw. How did you land on a Twinkie being the fatal flaw to your character? Or, you know, uh, you Good know, question. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it was we ate Twinkies growing up. We had a very boring suburban uh, childhood in Phoenix, Arizona. And we just ate Twinkies and bologna and cheese sandwiches and stuff. And so it was a little bit of a nod to our youth. But I think also we just wanted it to represent the past and the things you, you, you'd lost when, when the post-apocalypse happened. Post-apocalypse happened. And, and we like to joke that Twinkies last forever. They actually have a shelf life of about three weeks. They do not last forever. But, but uh, the joke is kind of that they would last forever because they have so many preservatives. 
Um, but we thought it was a nice symbol of, of youth and innocence and the past and the real world and something that while it seems small and is, is literally small, it looms large in Tallahassee's mind. Uh, one of my favorite scenes, and actually Woody Harrelson said it's his favorite scene in the movie, uh, was this Emma and Jesse drinking scene where they, they dance and nearly kiss. Uh, what were the challenges of that romance? Because you obviously have to set up the romance, which you didn't have a lot of time, you know, because Emma came in a little late in the movie, the character. How did you approach that scene and actually setting it up to pay it off, their romance? Well, I mean, again, you're right. There wasn't a lot of, lot of space to do it. And, and it was, I think, just the chemistry between, you know, Emma and Jesse really enhanced those two characters. They, they have great, great chemistry. And, and so, you know, when they're on screen together and they have that connection, um, the audience really does feel it. Um, and uh yeah that that's a romantic scene that that scene where they're dancing and then woody pops in that 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 whole sequence uh you know that then spins into you know uh i can't remember is bill murray that's after, after bill, bill murray, murray yeah yeah um but then you know the the woody reveals or tallahassee reveals about his his son and and it's it's uh it's a, a fun and and romantic and an emotional kind of stretch of the movie that that really really grounds I think you know the audience. It also has a mistake. They mentioned Anaconda being an R-rated movie, and it was actually a PG-13 rated movie, and we got that wrong. Um, so we heard from a few Anaconda fans on that one. There, I think there are only out there. a few Anaconda fans. We heard from all of them. So. But you had the social media outrage, so you know. That's, yeah. that's, uh... yeah. Okay, so when I book guests for Script to Screen, I usually, you know, I'll email a talent, publicist, agents, or managers. Uh, there's one talent that I've never been able to get a hold of. Any advice how to get Bill Murray to be in your movie? <laughs> I heard it was a challenging time to get him on your set. Show. Well, Paul Wernick, um, I don't know if I'm pointing to him or it looks like, to me it looks like I'm pointing to him. Maybe you know, I'm not on screen, but yeah, it was all Paul. Um, why don't you tell it, Paul, or and I'll jump in at some point. But. So, so that that particular role uh, started as Patrick Swayze. It was Pat supposed to be Patrick Swayze, and Patrick Swayze. It was written for Patrick, uh, and uh, he unfortunately got sick. He never got to read it. He never got presented the role, um, and then that became a, a cameo. That particular that Bill Murray cameo went through what. 12, 15 different, different drafts with different actors. It was Joe Pesci and Sylvester Stallone and Mark Hamill, Johnny Johnson, Jean-Claude Van Damme. Uh, it, it, kind of, it's bacon, you name it. I mean, we, we tried everybody. Go, go on to our Twitter on our, on our Twitter feed. Uh, we, we kind of trade back and forth. Rhett and I do scenes that we wrote of all the actors who, who were, uh, who we wrote uh, for that particular role. And anyway, we were about two days from shooting that particular scene. Uh, we didn't have an actor. Everyone had said no to us and we were shooting in the grocery store and, uh, the studio said, shut it down. We're going to, we, we had written this alternate version where it was a grandmother and grandfather uh, who uh, live in this beautiful home. They, they come, you know, in Los Angeles, they show up at the home. Oh, how sweet. It's grandma and grandpa. 
they turn out to be these terrible zombies and there's a big zombie fight and the studio's like, love it. We don't have an actor. Let's just lock it in. We flew in uh, stunt performers to play those roles and we were all set. And I just, we couldn't let it go. We couldn't let that cameo go. It felt like it was kind of the linchpin of the movie. It was, it was what, everyone was going to talk about, you know, uh, around the water cooler the next day. And, and so we went up to Woody uh, and we said, anybody, we're two days out from shooting. Is there anyone you could call? And Woody is, Woody is renowned for just having the greatest Rolodex in the history of Hollywood because everybody loves the guy, right? And he's worked in this town for 30 plus years. So he's People got- actually had Rolodexes back then, guys. That's, that name probably doesn't mean anything to you, but. <laughs> yeah, and, and, uh, and he opened up his, his flip phone and he was kind of filtering through it. And, and we had flip phones back then too. And he goes, uh, well, I, you know, anybody would. And he goes, well, I could call Dustin Hoffman. Uh, or, or how about Bill Murray? And we're like, yes and yes. And he started with Bill and Bill does not have an agent. He does not have a manager. At the time he had an 800 number. I don't know if he still does or not. You call his 800 number and he's got an answering machine and you leave a message on his answering machine. And if you intrigue him, he calls you back. And, and Woody had done Kingpin with him. So he had the relationship. Woody left a message Bill called him and, you know, Woody explained, look, I've got this, this movie I'm shooting, zombie movie. And, you know, I almost could hear Bill hanging up the phone at that moment. Uh, Bill, Bill stuck with us and, and said, well, send me the script. Well, he doesn't have, he didn't at the time have an email address either. So we had to send the script. It was upstate New York. We sent it to a FedEx Kinko's in upstate New York. The FedEx Kinko's guy printed up the script. Bill walks down, you know, walks down to the FedEx Kinko's, reads the script. And Paul's joke was that this guy at FedEx Kinko's is the most, one of the most important people in Hollywood. He has Bill Murray's ear and he either tells him, you're going to want to do this or I, you can pass on this one. Yeah, the 17-year-old kid, you know, wearing the blue, you know, FedEx Kinko's shirt is, is, uh, is basically deciding, you know, Bill Murray's career. And, um, Anyway, so Bill went down, he printed up the script, he read it, and he called Woody, and he says, hey, you know, there's just, I love the script, but there's just not enough for me to do. And at the time, in the script, Bill uh, was a zombie. He, there, he started as a zombie, big zombie fight, they do the whole thing and, and kill Bill Murray, you know. And, and we had the epiphany at the moment of like, Oh my God, like, oh, uh, another fun part of that story before this epiphany was Bill calls uh, Woody on his flip phone and that's when he says, you know, there's not enough for me to do. And Woody run, you know, runs out to all of us. We're on a, uh, this was at, uh, we were on a, a street or a, a out in the back backwoods of, of Georgia and he puts uh, Bill on speakerphone and Bill's saying like, I love the script. Like, duh, duh, duh. And, and uh, he's, but it's not enough for me to do. And we said, well, well, what if, what if you're Bill Murray and you're dressed as a zombie, right? You, you're, you're, that's how you survive. Is that, that's your, your mode of survival is you're just pretending to be the zombie. And he's like, and he clicked, clicked in like crazy to that. He started to riff and was saying, Oh, what if I'm in golf clothes? And, my, you hear my the clicking and clacking of my golf shoes walking on the tile, 
And, and again, we're about a day and a half out. And, and after about 20 minutes of Bill and Woody kind of throwing out ideas on speakerphone, it's, we're all kind of sitting in our director's chairs, leaning forward going, Holy, like, is Bill Murray going to do this? Like, Woody goes, all right, Bill, we're, we're about, you know, 36 hours from shooting. Everyone's kind of on the edge of their seat here. Are you, we got to know, are you going to do it? And he, and Bill goes, you know, Woody, it takes a lot to get me out of bed in the morning, but I'm in. And Woody hangs up his flip phone and, and everyone cheers. And 36 hours later, Bill Murray's on set, you know, in makeup and, uh, uh, and we're shooting it that day. So, and he Paul, Paul left out a tiny little half step of the story, which was that what, before Bill made that call, we had actually sent him the draft that had him talking. We, one of the things that we were doing was rewriting this scene for actors every two days. So we were out on the set writing these scenes and sending them off. And so we'd gotten it down to a science. And so when Bill said there wasn't enough to do, we actually spent some time and rewrote the draft with him as the, as the non-zombie. Uh, as as talking for himself and sent it off to him. He went down to the FedEx Kinko's a second time to pick up the second draft, and that's when we got that call. The only reason I'm I'm not, I'm not trying to call Paul out on it, but um, there is a point sometimes to having writers on the sets of movies because stuff goes wrong, things go sideways, weird stuff happens. Having a writer around who can pivot and write something new, uh, you know, when something doesn't go right, can really really save a director's bacon. I mean, you know, and 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 this was a case where we had been out on this darn set for weeks and weeks and having very little impact most of the time. Like we would suggest a line here, a line there. And our whole goal, as Paul said, was to just try to make it a little bit better every day, just to make one suggestion. If we could make it a little bit better, we were justifying the fact that we were sitting in Valdosta, Georgia at four in the morning in 20 degree weather going, what are we doing here? But it was that, it was that moment when we rewrote that Bill Murray scene in an hour and a half and sent it off yeah. to him that, that ended up landing Bill Murray. So I do think uh, it is important to have screenwriters on movie sets. Like, doesn't always happen. It, it comes down to whether the director is, is either threatened or encouraged by having a writer there. But Ruben is so cool and so inclusive, and he really wanted us there. And that was, I think, a pivotal moment for the movie. That might not or would, certainly would not have happened because it was Paul's suggestion for for Woody to get into his Rolodex. Uh, so would not have happened had Paul not been there, um, but also the rewriting wouldn't have happened. And, and that can really help a movie. Did you have any reservations about would Columbus kill Bill Murray or not? That's interesting that you asked because it was a huge debate. It was not in a retrospect, uh, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Everybody loves the moment Bill Murray gets killed in his death scene. But there was definitely a contingent, and I think I might've been one of them who was at least a little worried that is the audience going to forgive us, right? Is the audience just going to get sad? Are they going to get mad? Are they going to be like, hey, you killed Bill Murray? It's like, you, you know, it's like we were, and, and I think finally we were like, let's just hope it works. And of course, a Bill Murray death scene is, is just about, look, I mean, to me, it's my favorite moment of anything we've ever done is Bill Murray's death scene. And, and he improvised a lot of it. And, but it's so darn funny that you can't be that sad. Like, it's just, he's too good that you just can't, you gotta, you gotta forgive Columbus. But I also was struck by the scene where Tallahassee does tell the story about his son dying. Because uh, now, you, now you've been comedy all the way, but it was such a moving scene. Was it, so for, for you was that, you, know, you had the funny moment where he caught side cry during Titanic, but really it, the movie really kind of shows, you know, them actually coming together at that point. 
was that always a part of it where you wanted the reveal of the uh, kid? Yeah, I mean, that was another, um, another little screenwriting lesson is that, you know, kind of borrow from the greats or maybe steal from the greats. Uh, that the idea came from the series finale of MASH. Um, it's, it, that, that episode of MASH is a very famous one where Alan Alda is talking about a chicken that died and he talks about the chicken, the chicken, the chicken. And then at the end of the episode, you learn that it wasn't, a, you learn that it wasn't a chicken, it was a baby. And we had seen that along with the rest of America many, many years previous. And it just, it, it lodged somewhere. And we just thought, how cool would it be if, if Tallahassee's always talking about his lost dog. And then at some point in the movie, you pull the rug out and you learn that it was actually his son. And it, it sort of, it just chokes me up sort of even thinking about it. It was probably the most emotional moment of the movie. And Woody is, you know, he's the best and he, he sold it like crazy. And, and again, there was another surprise in that scene was that when, Woody tell when Tallahassee tells the story about Bach to to the to the rest of the um, to everybody, and they're playing Monopoly and they're playing with the real money. Um, and Woody uh, Tallahassee dabs his eyes with the, the um, with the hundred dollar bills and says, "I haven't cried like that since Titanic." It gets a massive, massive laugh, like on the heels of the most emotional, you know, devastating story about a, a man losing his son. And then he, he tells this joke. It's, it's almost like the audience is begging for it, right? It's like, and it's nothing we expected because much like killing Bill Murray, we feared that telling that story, we couldn't come back from it. Like that would be mm -hmm. one that like, how do you start telling jokes again after you tell the story of a man who just lost his son and how it was the most heartbreaking thing he's ever experienced. But, but he tabs his, his, his eyes with the, with the hundred dollar bills and the audience just, just clicks right back in. It's a, it's a big laugh in the, in the theater. And then the audience is back, back feeling like it's okay to laugh. And it was really unexpected. And also, you know, a, a worry, you know, as we were putting it together, so. But it also sets up, like, because he begins to come to terms with death, it, it also sets up the father relationship with Abigail Breslin and even Jesse Eisenberg, because he's willing to sacrifice himself at the end. Yeah. Like, he knows he might not get out of that situation. Yeah. You know, so was that, was that structure you parted where you wanted this movement to father and move him to, like, at the end of the movie, willing to give up his life? The, his kids, his new kids. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is. I mean, it's it's a it's a, a story of a dysfunctional family, right? I mean, that this is a, a dysfunctional family, a family that wouldn't otherwise come together in any other circumstance, and yet at the end of it, they love each other and they uh, uh, and they'll die for each other. And and I think that that element of the story i think is is what makes the audience feel and takes them on this journey is because a lot of people can relate to that you know now the end sequence foreshadows death i mean woody harrelson looks like he's, he could die jesse eisberg's in trouble the girls are in trouble however for you for that sequence balancing you know because it became much more actiony and dangerous and the score was amazing in that sequence too how did you approach that the end sequence to mix all these things to come together and their final resolution yeah, I mean, I think we wanted it to feel like the threat was real and, and Woody could die in particular. I think nobody, I think probably as an audience member, you're not thinking that either Columbus or Wichita or Little Rock would die. But but you could imagine Tallahassee going down in a blaze of glory to sacrifice for his family. And I think that threat uh, adds some extra juice to those scenes. Um, 
that we shot that very early. It was one of the first things we shot that whole amusement park thing and a movie shoot backwards. And so all of our characters, all of our actors had to dial in the end of the story and what their emotions were like and very difficult to do. And it was 20 degrees. It was night middle of nowhere in Georgia, there were t tornado warnings. I was like <laughs> half panicked over the tornado warnings. Like it was not the best environment. And yet, uh, those guys nailed the emotion. Um, and, uh, and I don't know, just put the capper on the movie. It was, it was a, a really sweet ending. We thought, um, so uh, sadly we couldn't be in the Pollock theater right now because this is, we talked about before we got on, this is a type of movie you want to see with an audience. Of all, you know, the, you know I, I believe all movies should be seen in theaters, but specifically an audience one like this. How was the experience watching it with an audience when it first came out for you guys? Actually seeing the audience reaction when they didn't know the movie. There's actually what it a, funny, a funny story associated yeah, with that. I'll, I'll, I'll tell it. I'll tell it as quickly as I can because it, it could get long. But basically, uh, opening night, uh, uh, this was October of 2009, uh, the, the studio got us uh, a, a big car, like a Suburban, and we all drove around to different theaters uh, together. It was Rhett, myself, Woody, Emma, Jesse, Ruben. Was there anybody else? I think that might have been it, but yeah. And and we were bouncing around at Gavin. Gavin, and we were dan bouncing around and popping into different theaters at different times, you know, you know throughout the night just watching the audience and and early on in the night we we popped into a few theaters and and they weren't very crowded you know we were popping in at, at scenes that weren't as engaging as others and 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 it got a little bit like uh-oh like are we in trouble here like is this movie going to be a success we we hadn't heard a a a, a, a peep about you know box office or or you know that it was gonna open big or you know there was just no one really knew and it was uh and so we 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 were coming out of uh we were in south central los angeles we were coming out of a theater a magic johnson theater uh and and the theater was virtually empty and a guy walked up to Woody and, and uh, you know, as we were walking out of the theater, as Woody was about to get in the car and said, oh, it's, you know, white man can't jump. You know, he's like, Woody Harrelson. He's like, and Woody's like, hey, go, uh, go, go watch Zombieland. You should go see Zombieland. It's great. It's my new movie. And the guy goes, watch it. You want to buy it? He already had it on, on a DVD. <laughs> I don't know if he really did. I mean, I no, I think, how would he have had it that quickly? I, I, I've never really bought that he actually had it. I mean, he must, I mean, I don't know, but it was, he did say it though. Anyway, so Woody, Woody at that point taps out. Like he's, Woody's, everyone's kind of hanging their head. They're feeling like, oh man, are we in trouble here? This guy, you know, Woody leaves. Woody's like, I'm out. I'm tired. I'm going to bed. Um, and by going to bed, he's probably going out at that moment. Uh, so we all stick with it, right? We, we were like, okay, let's keep going. Like, we might as well. And we end up in Silver Lake at, what's that theater in Silver Lake? Classic. I, I'm spacing the name of it now. The Vista. Is the that Vista, how? Yeah, I think it is the Vista. It's the Vista in Silver Lake. Amazing theater. Old school theater. And, and, and we pop in right at the Bill Murray moment. And the right theater before. is... And the yeah, theater yeah. is packed and we're, we're all sitting on the floor. No one knows we're in the back of the theater, you know? And uh, so we're all sitting on the floor. 
the Bill Murray scene plays out. There's literally a guy rolling down the aisle laughing so hard. He he's, jumps out of his seat and rolling down the aisle. And, and like people are cheering. And we walk out of that scene. We, we, we spent about 10 minutes there. We walk out of that scene. It felt great. And that's when we got the call from the studio that the numbers were in and we were going to open number one and it was going to be this huge unexpected success. And, and uh, um, it was, it was great. It was such a great moment. And again, it was our, our first feature movie, Rhett and my together, our first feature movie. And, and it just, it felt wonderful. And, and, and just that communal experience of being in that theater at that exact moment and, and watching the audience kind of, just soak it all in. It, it's it's an excuse for why people should should go see movies on the big screen because you just don't get it, and especially in comedies, you know, you do. It's so important to have that that communal audience experience and laugh together as a, as you know as strangers. It's it's a wonderful thing. Okay, so we always end our our show the last one. We're an academic institution, so and we have a lot of students in the audience, uh, screenwriting students uh, in the audience. So if you guys each were to recommend one movie for them to study, could be a movie for the screenplay or just the structure, what movie would you recommend for them to look at and study? That's a great question. Oh. And I, I'll let Paul think for a minute because he's got a lot of favorites and I always know my answers. So I, I'm like a wind-up sure. dog on this one. I think I learned more from a, a miniseries called Lonesome Dove uh, than from any other uh, piece of screenwriting. It, it, it was shot in the late 80s. Uh, it is about five or six hours long, somewhere in that range. Um, it uh, has one of the most phenomenal casts of all time. It's Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones and Chris Cooper and Steve Buscemi and and Diane Lane and Angelica Houston. Like, it's truly like a cast where you're like, how did they get this group together? And, and, and Danny Glover, like crazy, crazy great cast. Um, but what's the most wonderful thing about it, apart from the acting, is uh, is the writing. It's, it's based on a Pulitzer Prize winning novel uh, I think it's the greatest piece of adaptation that's ever been done. If you like adapt adapting things and so much of what we do is adaptation now, whether it be novels or comics or video games or whatever. So we're taking some other thing and we're turning it into a screenplay. Um, you'll learn a million lessons about character, about dialogue, just watching this darn thing. I've watched it probably 10 or 15 times. Uh, you'll, you'll learn about, um, uh, and if you read the novel, you'll learn about how to take something that's amazing, but maybe not the most commercial thing and make it a little more commercial without, without ruining it. Um, anyway, I, I, I constantly find myself going back to Lonesome Dove. And, and I, I may uh, go a completely opposite direction and focus on a comedy, which is uh, Airplane. Um, mm -hmm. You know, you can, the, the, you can learn so much from the Zucker brothers um, they, they are just brilliant in their, in their, uh, you know, timing and in, in their edit. Uh, it, it's, it's an amazing study in, in comedy. So um, I don't know if kids are watching airplane. My guess is they're not these days, but flip it on. And, and I promise you, it holds, it, up. It it holds, holds up. up like crazy. So. Well, thanks so much for coming to us via the virtual new format. Our uh, pleasure, Matt. Thank you for having us. Thanks for coming. And of course, uh, the second this pandemic is over, we want you both in Santa Barbara with Me. these students live in person so we can see a movie like it's supposed to be seen. Uh, we, Love that. we promise we'll be there. I mean, UCSP is one of our favorite places, so we'll, we'll be there. Just let's get this, let's get this vaccine and, and we're there.
All right. Thanks so much, guys. Thank you, Thank you guys. Thanks, guys. Take care. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.